Bas de bons et bat, les bap. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Independence Podcast, working title, The Indie Pundit. Uh, I'm Dean Patterson. I'm sitting here with the executive editor of the Independent Newspaper, uh, Mr. John Tarleton. Hi, Dean. It's great to be with you. Of course, we're hopefully going to be here with uh, you, listener, every week as we go through uh, some of the news of the month, uh, some New York politics, some world politics, and bring takes from the editor of New York's only progressive print monthly. Um, And starting us off a little bit here today, uh, East River Park. Um, John just wrote an expose on a plan by... Uh, the city to demolish the park, essentially, build on top of it a landfill, um, and the consequences to the low-income housing, the community around it, um, that that plan is going to create. John, do you want to talk a little bit about what's going on over at East River Park? So yes, uh, uh, my article about the East River, the future of the East River Park is our uh, cover story uh, in this month's uh, print edition of the Independent, and uh, uh, while this park isn't well known, it's uh, it's one of the largest parks in Lower Manhattan. It serves a community of roughly 110,000 people, including over 25,000 public housing residents uh, that live in the Lower East Side. Uh, it's a 58-acre park, uh, all sorts of uses, recreational. Uh, family gatherings, little leagues, uh, beautiful uh, walkway along the river. And it's really it's a really a green oasis uh, in a community that otherwise uh, really doesn't have that. And But more than, than the struggle of, of a community to preserve a, a gem of a park, uh, you know, this is about many other issues. It's about... It's about how will coastal cities respond to climate change? Because the what's driving the city's plan to demolish this park is a desire to create a seawall to protect uh, that part of Lower Manhattan from future uh, uh, storm surges and, and, and rising ocean waters. Um, uh, and, and there's also uh, issues of past housing segregation, how the city planning is executed, and in whose interest questions of uh, mass uh, of the value we assign uh, automobiles automobiles versus mass transit and and uh, just to unpack that a little bit uh, starting with the question of automobiles and mass transit in, in, the, in the future of this park it, so the the origin of, of the reason that the, the need to build some kind of seawall there is because the neighborhood was inundated uh, by floodwaters during Hurricane Sandy. Uh, Hurricane Sandy basically lifted the ocean up and, and, and inundated uh, whole swaths of the city. And uh, the Lower East Side was definitely a very hard hit, especially the NYCHA residences that uh, line uh, FDR Drive. So there's a very real need uh, for a, a, a barrier um, that will protect against uh, you know, this future uh, problems we're going to have with, uh, with, with 
climate change. The thing is, is the uh, uh, during the Obama administration, the the uh, federal the federal uh, uh, HUD Housing and Urban Development yeah the Housing and Urban Urban Development uh, Department the federal government and, and the city invited the the residents of the neighborhood to to help plan and envision what kind of uh, see you know what sort of flood mitigation plan they wanted that they thought would be the best fit for their neighborhood and there's a lot of very careful discussion and uh, thought that went into developing a plan that would have provided a, a, a landscaped barrier that would have created a berm that basically rose in the back part of the park and would have preserved some of the park uh, going forward the community worked with the federal and local government to develop a, a very well articulated plan about how to both preserve the park and have uh, a berm uh, in the back of the park, eight feet high, to, to prevent future flooding coming in from the ocean. Last September, the, the city unilaterally scrapped that plan and announced it was going to go with a whole different plan that would involve basically clear cutting the whole park. Right. eliminating everything there and then burying it under eight feet of landfill and then afterwards building a new park on top of that uh, so one big difference in the two plans is that the, the original plan would have required uh, lane closure on the FDR Drive which uh, for any listeners who don't live in New York runs uh, uh, up the uh, east side of Manhattan and is adjacent uh, to this uh, two mile long park that uh, runs uh, down the Lower East Side. Uh, so one plan would have required a lane closure on FDR, which is a six, six lane highway, and the new plan does not. Yeah. So the new plan privileges the convenience of, of drivers and essentially turns the park into a sacrifice zone uh, a, a park that's primarily used by poor and working class and uh, middle class residents of the neighborhood as well. And uh, uh, so it's a really shocking situation. I've spent time in that park. And, and to imagine, and it's, and it's a lovely place to, you know, kind of hang out and uh, enjoy yourself. I mean, there's barbecue pits, Little League fields, an amphitheater for musical concerts. It's uh, like a wholesome public park. Yeah. Like out of a movie in this neighborhood that's already gentrifying and in a lot of now ways, it's too. Not as, you know, it's not as, uh, uh, I mean, it's only one-tenth the size of Central Park sure. uh, or Prospect Park, and it's not as glamorous as, say, the, the Hudson River Park, and it's not as commercialized either. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice public park that serves primarily poor and working class residents of the neighborhood. Yeah. They, and as uh, one of the lead characters in my article said, you know, we don't have summer homes. We don't have the Hamptons. When we want to get away, we come here. It's all, it's what they have. Uh, so this is, it, it's a story in a way of, that feels both out of the past and out of the future. It, it for anyone who's uh, read, ever read, uh, uh, Robert Caro's uh, classic, uh, The Power Broker, about Robert Moses, the uh, all-powerful city planner that uh, dominated uh, New York City's uh, public works projects from the 
1920s to the 1960s, uh, this is very much of a Robert Moses type project where he would run freeways, you know, right through whole neighborhoods without a, a second thought or, 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 or sweep away whole sections of tenements to put something else in. A very uh, uh, sort of one, I don't even say, how would you say it? Just a very uh, sort of uh, thoughtless uh, wrecking ball approach uh, to, uh, to city planning. And, uh, and, they, and they, some of the neighborhood advocates have asked, well, can, if you're going to do this demolition, can you do it in phases so that at least parts of the park will be open throughout this process? And, and the, city, the, the city's uh, Department of Design and Construction, which is leading this initiative, absolutely will not commit to that. They won't commit to it. So, um, so, the, so the community is really being screwed here. And, and my article wasn't the first thing to be written about this. I, I wouldn't exactly call it an expose. There have been, there have been other write-ups about it, but it's all been much more perfunctory and much more you know, oh, this is sort of a, you know, a technical problem and a, maybe a, you know, political challenge. Will the city be able to get this approval? And what I tried to do in my article was really sort of center the perspective of this community uh, that's on the verge of losing their own, only large public space and also put it in a, in a historical, you know, in a various context, sort of a multi-layered context of the history of the area of the of the political process that's driving this and uh um yeah it's a it's an intense story and and uh the opposition i think is finally starting to coalesce uh, around this more uh, i think some of the most uh, passionate uh, opponents of this have gotten much more organized in the, la in the last month or so from roughly around the time i started covering this article and then they're now planning protests in September and uh, are doing more outreach. And, uh, and I'm also happy to say that this issue of the independent, uh, which features two of the uh, neighborhood activists on the cover, uh, Yvette Mercedes and April Bowen, and has the, you know, the cover story inside, is uh, being widely distributed in the neighborhood. So this is a, this is a, a battle that has, is very hyper-local on one level and yet has these much larger uh, implications to it. Uh, so again, and, and this is a big question, you know, going forward with climate change is uh, who will, who will pay the, you know, who will be made to sacrifice? Because we're, climate change is going to require all sorts of changes and, and adaptations. Uh, but what we're what we're seeing here it is again uh, this predominantly poor and working class neighborhood is being asked to sacrifice its part for the convenience of of uh, suburban motorists, basically. Yeah, I mean it's, it's kind of a thematic. It seems this idea that Lower Manhattan is going to be able to profit and defend itself from climate change off the backs of the working people literally building a seawall on top of their public park, on top of this public infrastructure, is this kind of like thematic of, of eco-capitalism, eco-fascism, this kind of march on towards 
the idea that we're going to defend ourselves from the you know the mess that the capitalists created on the backs of the working people themselves. This uh, project, which is known as the East, the East Side Coastal Resiliency Project, is one part of a larger endeavor to to build what's called the Big U. It's like kind of a prophylactic ring around Lower Manhattan that would stretch from East 25th Street. Uh, all the way around the tip of the island and up to the top of Battery Park City, you know, create a Noah's Ark for the super wealthy to ride out climate change, and uh, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of people at, down in the in the NYCHA developments that are, are very worried that, that they'll just be privatized out of there in the next five to ten years. So by the time this park project gets finished, uh, people have good reason to wonder, you know, where. Where will those, uh, you know, think? Where will things stand with the with the NYCHA residences? It needs to be a broad, multiracial coalition. Lower East Side is very diverse, uh, but like so much of America, uh, there's a history there uh, where the the NYCHA residents, you know, going back to the construction of those houses in the in the early 1950s, uh, are, are overwhelmingly black and Latino. Uh, there's some very large uh, co-op uh, housing, especially on Grand Street, that was built by uh, labor unions in the 1950s, primarily the International Lady Garment Workers Union of that era. And that the, originally that was you know heavily uh, white Jewish residents, and then later those uh, co-ops were pri uh, privatized in the 1990s. And, and of course, the people who moved in were overwhelmingly white. And there's been a you know definitely you know additional white gentrification that's happened in the neighborhood and it's a question of you know can they really coalesce and, and present a broad front if it's just a fairly small contingent of mostly white liberal uh, activists that won't be enough but I think there's you know I, I feel like there's a more concerted effort going on to try to bring more people into understanding what's happening um, especially in the NYCHA houses. Um, uh, so we'll see. It's, I would say if, it, at this point, uh, the city definitely has the upper hand. Uh, and if, if the community can, it would be a big upset in, in sports terminology if the community was to win this. But it does feel like people are getting more, uh, more informed, more mobilized, and... Uh, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, battle the rest of the way. So, rolling along here, uh -huh. we you were mentioning the so the FDR drive lane closure. You're talking about this kind of unofficial drivers union, this conglomerate of everyone in car an SUV culture. car culture. As and recently, Corey Johnson said the magic words, speaker of the New York City City Council, saying we need to break car culture in New York City. Um, this ties into what has happened earlier this month. We had an article in the August issue of The Independent by Emma Gaffney detailing the organizing of um, these bikers um, in opposition, you know, uh, to this car culture that's leading to their deaths. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what's going on in, on the New York City streets um, and whether or not they can ever be safe for bikers? Yeah, just to step back, when... when Bill de Blasio came in as mayor, he, uh, he embraced this uh, plan called Vision Zero 
to make the, the streets uh, much safer for not only bicyclists, but pedestrians uh, who also suffer tremendously uh, in a car culture situation. So he and Vision Zero, I believe, uh, originated in Sweden. And when they mean Vision Zero is the idea of like zero deaths, like mm. that uh, a healthy transportation system that, that de-emphasizes uh, car culture and, and, and insists on responsible driving by those people who are using their cars uh, shouldn't have any fatalities. Uh, the, the idea was to make this, the city street safer. And I would say in, in, in de Blasio's first term, there was definitely uh, more, you know, continued to build more bike lanes, that, which began under Bloomberg. More, so you had more bike lanes, you had more, uh, uh, you know, me, medians in the streets for, you know, sort of uh, pedestrian islands and other things that made uh, infrastructure. So they shut down those blocks, right, in, in Midtown? Shut yeah, down those sure. whole blocks and turned into little parks in the middle of the city. Yeah, that that some of that started with Bloomberg, but yeah, they they basically created they were creating more infrastructure that makes that makes the streets would make the streets safer, both for pedestrians and for cyclists. Uh, uh, unfortunately, especially this year, things have really gone in reverse. Right. Uh, and so you have a situation where it, you know ten cyclists were killed last year. This year we're up to. 19 and it's mid-August and, and also just something to keep in mind is is that last year uh, 4,300 cyclists were injured by cars and uh, over 10,000 pedestrians were injured by cars and, um, and yeah the car culture is is, is, is lethal uh, and, and destructive and uh, it, it seems obviously we've hit the limits of uh, Vision Zero uh, right now here in the city. And you can do you imagine New York becoming something like Amsterdam or one of these kind of European cities where everyone is really just metro or biking or and you know cars have kind of become an obsolete form of transportation? Or do you think that there's only going to be some kind of like comfortable balance? I mean that's hard to say. I mean the state legislature finally authorized uh, congestion pricing uh, this spring, which right. will go. But it won't go into effect until 2021, and all sorts of groups are already lobbying for exemptions. And uh, so we'll we'll see uh, how uh, comprehensive uh, that is. Um, unfortunately, I mean, uh, if you really want to re reduce car culture in the city, you need to expand and improve mass transit, especially to parts of the outer boroughs that are not well served by mass transit. Yeah, and. and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean building more subway lines, because so in this city, even adding a few stations to a subway line often costs billions of dollars. Uh, um, but you could definitely do things with with uh, surface uh, transit, with the select buses, and and have those bus lines, you know, then feed into the subway stations. So it, essentially, there's a combination of the congestion pricing might be the stick, but the carrot is better. As transit, the problem is, uh, you know, by and large, uh, you know, Governor Cuomo, who controls the MTA, uh, hasn't been that interested in mass transit. He's, uh, I guess, has other priorities and, and doesn't want to essentially tax the rich to be able to make the kind of uh, sweeping investments to really 
you know, make New York City's uh, mass transit top flight. I mean, one of the biggest problems with our mass transit system here is the the, the signal system that the dates back to the 1930s that, right. that basically uh, limits uh, how many subway cars you can move through a subway line at any one time. You have to create, if you had a modern computerized uh, signal system. So we need, we need, you know, to really dramatically improve our mass transit. Congestion pricing can help with that a little bit and it gets some cars off the streets. Uh, there, I think there's a real problem with the NYPD. Most of their uh, officers live in the suburbs, whether in Staten Island or the Rockaways or on out in Long Island. And so they live in places where you don't really see many bicyclists. And I, and I think they really empathize far more with the, the, the drivers. And uh, so you can like mow somebody down and sometimes walk away with nothing more than like a summons, you know, like, oh, it's a class thing as well. Because the people by and large who can drive in the city tend to have more money. Yeah. To own a private car in New York City is uh, fairly rare. I mean, there's 8 million people. There's, you know, yeah, I would imagine the percentage of households that have a private car in this city is probably under 20%. Yeah. And that's mostly the, the more affluent 20%, uh, with some exceptions. And, uh, so, yeah, I think that's a contributing factor. The, the police and the prosecutors are like, oh, these are good, upstanding citizens. They just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when that pedestrian got in their way or that cyclist, you know, got in their way. Fell under their wheels. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, that was something in the recently completed, uh, you know, Queens District Attorney race Caban campaign very uh, strongly on a, on a promise to prosecute more aggressively where warranted, uh, you know, drivers uh, who drive recklessly and even homicidally. Uh, and so hopefully that'll uh, be an issue in the DA races in, uh, in Brooklyn and Manhattan that will take place in 2021. There seems to be this presumption in New York that because the roads are so congested that the rules don't really matter, especially for traffic cops. Because every kind of lane, double parking is rampant, common for every time there's opposite side parking. Bike lanes are just another lane to drive in for most people or parking, especially in Brooklyn. Uh -huh. Bus lanes, same situation. Buses themselves always driving through the bike lane. Cops parking in all of these places for whatever reason they want to. I mean, there's really like, there's technically designations to the road, but how closely they're followed by drivers, it seems like they're given so often just a, a free pass to drive as recklessly as they want to and, and kind of as flippantly. Yeah, you have to make the bike lanes, you have to really flesh them out. Yeah. I saw some new bike lanes recently uh, on 12th and 13th Street in, in Lower Manhattan, uh, which were created uh, in part because of the L train shutdown and wanting to facilitate more bike traffic on, on 12th and 13th so the buses could use 14th Street without hindrance. Yeah. And those bike lanes like are really like specifically marked, and there's little uh, uh, pylons or whatever you want to call them that make it much harder for cars to 
get in those bike lanes. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, uh, we not only need more bike lanes, but yes, we need better bike lanes. And again, I can't emphasize enough that uh, this is also about the pedestrians. I mean, uh, last year, 115 pedestrians were killed, over 10,000 were injured by cars. Uh, Zero pedestrians were killed by bicyclists and a little over, uh, I think 300 pedestrians were hurt, you know, injured by bicyclists. So something like 98% of the injuries are caused by cars and almost 100% of the fatalities are the pedestrians experience. Uh, yeah, because people can make a choice about whether to be a cyclist. I mean, I think people should be free to make that choice without feeling like they're taking their life in their hand. But everybody at one time or another has to be a pedestrian. Yeah, well, there's that presumption that people say like, oh, you got to watch, bikers are always so crazy, you got to watch out for them. Then these stats, you know, prove the point that like, no, like bikers are actually, it's quite safe. Cars are the ones that are running into people. Yeah, I think what <laughs> happens is, is may remember more the, 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 rec, the wilder, more reckless cyclist that might have zoomed by them at some point and, may, and, and hardly noticed, you yeah. know, a hundred other cyclists that just tootled on by mm-hmm. without uh, without it, you know, really causing any uh, scene at all. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know what the term for that is, but... Uh, it's like a frequency bias at play. Right. You right. remember the guy that scared that, you know, yeah. that And the cars do it so commonly, you don't even notice when they're the ones doing it. <laughs> right. And of course, the cars are so ubiquitous. Yeah. And, and, and uh, there's been so much carnage for so long. Uh you know, over a hundred years now. And if you don't like street rats, that's another thing. You get the cars, uh, give them, take away their free parking and we can have garbage cans on the streets instead of just free food for rats every night. <laughs> now, maybe one, just uh, one quick personal story here maybe we, as we wrap up this conversation. Uh, last, I believe it was last Thursday, I, uh, last Thursday morning, I, I was riding my bike in, in my neighborhood. It was, uh, I was biking home uh, from my neighborhood pool, and uh, I, I crossed a, a two-lane street uh, against the red light. I admit it. I was literally drifting. Like it was, a, there was no oncoming traffic. There was no oncoming. I this looked, is admittable in court. Just let, let it be known. <laughs> yeah, I looked. I looked both ways. No cars. No pedestrians. I drifted across the road and then started to uh, bike uphill. And all of a sudden, there was a, 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 a cop vehicle behind me with flashing lights, and they tell me to pull over, and then they tell me, oh, you're gonna, we're ticketing you for running a red light. Now, anybody who's bicycle in the city knows that this happens all the time. Now, obviously, if people are bicyclists are recklessly running through a red light, they're risking their own lives and, and risking other people. But as those two cops told me, they're, yes, we know there was no traffic, blah, 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 but we're enforcing the law. This happens frequently when there's a uptick in bicycle fatalities and, and bad press for the city. The NYPD responds by starting to issue a flurry of tickets to the bicyclists. And uh, so uh, when the when the two police officers came back with a ticket for $190. Mm. Please donate to the independent uh, John Bale no, no, fund. No. Um, <laughs> That's my problem. But So when the cops 
first guy out of the car to approach me, the, the lead officer let me know that they were wearing a, a you know the little video cam on their on their like chest uh, pocket. So when when they came back and presented me a ticket for one hundred and ninety dollars for drifting across a street with no oncoming traffic at about three miles an hour. Uh, I was obviously uh, incensed, not only for myself, but that th knowing that this is how the police department was responding to this crisis in our streets. People are being slaughtered, uh, again, pedestrians and cyclists, and, and this is how they want to respond. So I asked the officer, do you still have your video cam on? And they were like, yes. I was like, well, I have a message for your precinct commander, because I know ultimately they're just the grunts carrying out orders. And uh, so, I, you know, I did turn to the video cam and basically, and very bluntly said, this is total bullshit. This is, in case you're interested in actually trying to, you know, make the streets safer, what you need to do, I said, was one, deal with all the motorists are speeding to get all the cars and trucks out of the bike lanes. Their response was, well, we're just enforcing the law. <laughs> um, and they were like, we're just enforcing the law. I was like, you have the discretion. You just have to use your common sense if you have any. <laughs> and one of the cops, as they walked away, was like, I have common sense. <laughs> My parting words were, fucking act like it. Hell yeah. Well, James O'Neill, police commissioner of NYPD, is now on notice uh, due to this podcast and the, the video that I'm sure he's uh, keeping him up at night, that footage. Um, speaking of things that have kept uh, James O'Neill up at night, um, Eric Gardner has now seen some kind of justice. Um, Daniel Pantaleo was fired as of yesterday. Today's August 20th, so he was fired yesterday, about 20 hours ago, um, officially. Um, so we're seeing the end of now a five-year uh, kind of struggle by social justice activists, the Black Lives Matter movement, really anyone opposed to just rampant police brutality and m murder on the streets by members of the government. Um, and so the uh, NYPD's seen a couple, um, the, well, the police union, the Police Benevolence Association obviously came out claiming that this uh, will put, you know, officers in jeopardy and so on, that this was a uh, hasty and unnecessary decision. O'Neill, the police uh, commissioner, discussed how uh, this, you know, no one really received justice in this case and tried to play down the, um, the struggle that led to this. Um, John, we've been covering this story for years now, of course. Um, what yes. do you, what's your take now at the end of this uh, journey? Right, so Eric Garner was murdered in broad daylight on July 17th, 2014. Daniel Pantaleo threw the choke, famous chokehold around him. Many other cops also piled on top of, of Pantaleo and Eric Garner as he cried out, I can't bleed, breathe, I can't breathe, 11 times. So yes, five years and a, a month later, finally the police department uh, has dismissed Officer Pantaleo. So uh, that's good news, long overdue. Uh, it's almost, it really made a, a mockery of justice because in those five years, Pantaleo uh, was on 
believe on desk duty. It might have been on administrative leave at first and then later desk duty. So he was collecting a full paycheck plus all benefits. So the taxpayers in New York are probably easily laying out $100,000 a year between pay and benefits. Another half million dollars in pay and benefits went to this homicidal police officer, uh, you know, while, you know, due process was, uh, you know, followed. Uh, so I think of, uh, I mean, a few takeaways from this. One, again, uh, all the focus went on Pantaleo, but there were like 11 other cops on that scene. And many, you know, Pantaleo did the chokehold. A lot of the others were in on the pylon. Also, I think at least one or two of those cops, if not more, filed essentially false police reports about what happened. They didn't realize that Ramsey Orta was filming everything. This is what always happens when you have police uh, misconduct is their, their fellow officers uh, essentially lie on, on their behalf. Right. And, and the, the, the videotape came out after these, they, these false reports were, were filed. But nothing was ever done about those cops. Um, it was, that was the same in Chicago in the Laquan McDonald case where the cop who fired the lethal shots was ultimately found guilty, but the other cops who, uh, you know, filed uh, false reports false about this, misleading reports, face no uh, consequences. So there is that. Let's not forget all the other police officers that were involved in this and, and faced no con, never faced any questions or consequences over their actions. Sure. Uh, uh, I think also this situation. Uh, just uh, underscores the, the the toxic power of the police unions in New York City. There's five, there's actually five police unions. The largest and strongest is the Patrolman Benevolence Association (PBA), which is led by Patrick Lynch, a former uh, patrolman himself, who uh, clearly <laughs> believes that his job is to uh, stridently defend. Uh, uh, even the most egregious uh, police misconduct. Um, and while I, I believe that public sector unions on, on the whole are a, a very positive uh, force in our society, the, ironically, the traditional uh, conservative, conservative critique of public sector unions that they, that they we use their power and ability to influence the public officials who who uh, supervise them uh, definitely comes true with the police unions. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe I think a, a good union talk would be good for another episode, but there's certainly something to be said about like the, the PBA and the police unions kind of being an illegitimate union, so to speak, being formed as kind of the last ditch effort of the AFL-CIO. Right. I mean, these are kind of sure. I mean, a lot of leftists would argue that police unions are no, you know, are, yeah, shouldn't be considered a legitimate union. But whatever they are, whatever you, you know, de however you want to define them, they're there, and and they play a, a, a very uh, toxic role. Also, one of the upshots of the Pantaleo case is we learned a lot more, sort of about how the the disciplinary process works or doesn't work. Uh, when when, char when police officers are accused of uh, egregious misconduct. And, and one thing that's really outrageous here in New York 
is it under something called Article 50, which is a state law, very difficult to access police personnel records and to know if a cop who's accused of wrongdoing, you know, has had previous incidents. And the, with Pantaleo, the only way we knew that this was, guy was already a bad cop is that he had had at least two civil lawsuits filed against him by people he had abused to, you know, while working as a cop. Um, I think I think he had had other incidents reported against him that went, you know, were reported to the police department um, that uh, were essentially sort of off, you know, not accessible. And I think, I, if I recall correctly, some whistleblower in the department released that information. But so a lot of police misconduct, we have no way of knowing if this. Uh, accused cop is somebody who's had a you know sterling upstanding record throughout his career and just made some you know terrible mistake or if this is like an abusive even sadistic cop what is and 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 uh so hopefully that uh law is going to be revisited in albany next year that and uh so that we can have i mean the public pays for this salaries, the benefits, and, and ultimately the very nice pensions that police officers receive, we uh, certainly have a right to know it, you know, who the cops are that are, uh, you know, perpetrating the abuses in the streets. Because I don't think all cops uh, commit abuses, but obviously enough do to create a real menace yeah. for society, and we need to know who they are, and, and they should be weeded out of the department as quickly as possible. Uh, also, uh, yesterday, uh, I mean, Pat Lynch, you know, held a predictably hysteric mm -hmm. press conference where he demanded the firing of Bill de Blasio and Commissioner O'Neill for firing Daniel Pantaleo. Well, we could probably agree with him on that, at least. Maybe not for the reason, but... <laughs> um, yeah, well, I wouldn't, I don't think it'd be a good idea to give uh, the PBA anything that they want. Uh, but more than that... Uh, they, the PBA sent out a directive uh, to the 24,000 rank-and-file members uh -huh. uh, to essentially engage in a work slowdown, to only uh, arrest, uh, carry out arrests uh, when a, uh, you know, a supervisor was present, unless it you know, was an especially urgent and immediate situation. And this has Great. echoes of a strategy that the PBA last deployed if you think about it, if, if the if the police kind of stop doing their job and, and the word is out to the criminals that the police aren't going to arrest them, that would make a lot of people in the city uneasy. It's revolution time, folks. That's what it means. Well, <laughs> you know, the, the PBA argument that, that they're the thin blue line between, you know, chaos and civilization, uh, they... They would make a lot of people nervous if they. So anyway, this whether that apprehension is merited. I mean, we could talk about it another time, but it's definitely a strategy for you know scaring a lot of the population. Mm. Uh, so this has echoes of a strategy that the PBA last carried out in December of 2014 and January of 2015 in the aftermath at, at the height of the Black Lives Matter 
protests, which were fueled in part by the Staten Island DA office's refusal to prosecute Daniel Pantaleo. Mm -hmm. So we're coming full circle here again. So at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests in December 2014, there was a gunman who drove up from Baltimore and, and essentially assassinated two uh, NYPD officers in their squad car uh, here in Brooklyn. And uh, it was a very shocking incident. Uh, there was no indication this the assailant had participated in Black Lives Matter protests and he was quickly gunned down afterwards. We never had a chance to hear from him. But in the aftermath of that incident, the, the PBA quickly blamed all the protesters and, and de Blasio and all the rest. And at that time, de Blasio was in the first year of his administration and he had come out and shown uh, some amount of support for the Black Lives Matter protests. He, of course, uh, has a biracial family himself uh, and which had incensed the PBA that the mayor in the, at the in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests was not 100% in the corner of his cops. Mm -hmm. so now two cops get killed. They, the police union is just in a, you know, blood soaked, you know, uproar. And the police around the city, uh, the level of tickets and arrests like plummeted over like the next several weeks. It was very clear there was a, a, a work slowdown going on. Uh, we wrote about this at the Independent, um, and ultimately, De Blasio and Pat Lynch and other mediators uh, got together uh, discreetly, and uh, the and, and the then uh, police commissioner Bratton, and uh, the slowdown ended, and then. It never, it never formally began and it never formally ended, but the, the cops did resume their normal activities after several weeks of this. Uh, but I, I, there was no way to prove it, but it was ever from that point onward, de Blasio took an entirely passive uh, stance toward his police department. Mm -hmm. It was like basically he was a hands-off mayor. That was that, that world was the responsibility of his police commissioner, who came, you know came through the ranks of that department. And so yeah, he's been entirely passive in the five years since then. And it was really only the combination of the incredible persistence of Black Lives Matter, the Eric, the Eric Garner family, and other activists uh, here in New York, as well as I think some of the. Uh, pointed criticism that de Blasio was getting on the presidential campaign trail and also on national television in uh, one of the presidential debates mm -hmm. that that goaded him to uh, stop being an entirely uh, passive uh, observer of his own police department. So it's interesting. We, we're, we've come full circle here uh, in, in the Eric Garner, Daniel Pantaleo uh, saga that you know, five years later, there's been finally been some reprimand from Pantaleo. And once again, the P, it, it appears the PBA is trying to you know, go back to this uh, strategy of a work slowdown. We'll see a bit uh, how that takes shape. I mean, obviously, in 2014, after the killing of those two cops, the emotions were very uh, intense in the police department, and you'd had weeks of massive 
mean, protest. Isn't, aren't they just shooting themselves, like making themselves look like Eric Garner was killed because they busted him for some broken windows policing. He was selling Lucy's, like single cigarettes. Yeah. And broken. so then they stop, pro- like stop ticketing broken windows, stupid crimes that they use to drum up their quotas in response to this. Yes, that was one other upshot of this is they did start we to back off. keep firing more cops if it makes them <laughs> chill out, right? I mean, like, is there really any discernible negative to them doing a work slowdown other than, like, the optics? It seems like a good thing. And also just exposing them. Well, it's interesting. We did a, we did a cover story in January of 2015 um, by uh, Aaron Kent, a writer named Aaron Cantu, uh, and the, the, the title on the cover was Do We Really Need the Police? Question mark. And anyway, Aaron, uh, he had covered these issues before that. And, I mean, he went out to Brownsville, Brooklyn, uh, uh, predominantly African-American community, where you would think there would be intense you know, dislike for the police. And the response he got was essentially, like, from, the, from these communities was... You know, we don't like when the police abuse us, but we want them here doing their job. We don't want to be abused by criminals either. So, uh, yeah, for a lot of people, they, they, they want the police, but they want the police to be respectful, professional, and uh, not engage in you know, abusive or racist behavior. Now, uh, you, you could certainly make the argument that the modern police department was entirely is a product of, you know, uh, racist uh, forces in this society and that, that, that chances of having a, a, a non-racist, non-abusive police department are, are not very good. On the other hand, you can look at other Western capitalist industrial nations in Western Europe or Japan where the police aren't slaughtering their, their uh uh, you know, fellow uh, residents. They, Those are ethnically homogenous countries, though, you're looking at as well. That's, that is true. That, that, but also, those are countries where you have very low gun ownership, and in some cases, the cops don't have guns either. Yeah. Um, and I think the U.S., you definitely have, between the history of slavery and this sort of, like, cowboy frontier mentality and, and then the constant warfare our society is engaged in, and you have a lot of cops that come back from military duty there's a, there's a lot of factors that are unique to the United States but anyway whether whether you think the police force our police force could be uh, non-racist non-abusive or not a lot of people want them to be that and and, and expect that and uh, would be unhappy if they essentially withdrew from doing their what's supposed to be their normal day-to-day job. And now whether people would blame, you know, the mayor in this case, or whether they would blame the police union, uh, given the circumstances of trying to launch a work slowdown because Daniel Pantaleo was fired for killing uh, Eric Garner in broad daylight. I don't know, I don't know if the police union could sustain the, any, you know, the kind of any sort of public support. Yeah. But that it's it you know this is uh, a place they've gone before so i guess we'll see uh see what happens this time yeah yeah i i, I think it'll 
considering the caban race that's now ended in this tide of progressive and reformist district attorneys, it'll be interesting to see how the police in New York City and in these other cities are responding to these changes in tactics and like if there are alternatives to policing that can be kind of constructed out of these movements. Um, so the yeah, I mean, story. I think, I mean, I think with the police, I don't think you can abolish them overnight, but you could certainly uh, limit, try to shrink the shrink the size of the police force and shrink the number of responsibilities they're asked to take. I think Bernie Sanders was talking about this yesterday when he announced the criminal justice program. Essentially, the police are asked to be social workers and conflict mediators and a lot of things they're not necessarily well trained at or prepared to do. Uh, so if we shrank the size of our police forces, so if, if we did all that, we would be on a healthier path. That's going to be all for today. Indie Punch. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to the first episode of the Independent's new podcast, The Indie Pundit. Uh, signing off, this is Dean Patterson uh, with our executive editor, John Tarleton. If you liked what you heard today, please like and subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to submit a question for the next uh, episode of The Indie Pundit, uh, email me at dean period independent that's i n d y pendant at gmail.com uh, drop me a line and give me your comments questions concerns we'd love to hear from you john do you have anything else you want to say uh, it's been uh, it's been great uh, talking today i look forward to doing it again next week mm-hmm. de blasio if you're out there please come home we're waiting y'all have a great day